This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. You're listening to Most Innovative Companies. I'm Josh Christensen. Today, we have another featured panel from Fast Company's 2022 Innovation Festival this past fall in New York City. This panel is called Silence is Not an Option, Leaders on When and How to Speak Out on Social Issues. This panel features Daniela Balu-Ares, co-founder and CEO of the Leadership Now Project, Ashley Orgain, Chief Impact Officer of 7th Generation, and Richard Edelman, CEO of Edelman. Enjoy. Welcome to Silence is Not an Option. Over the past several years, we've seen more and more businesses take strong positions on volatile issues from Colin Kaepernick to the Dobbs decision to uh, the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida. Companies are jumping into the fray. And our three panelists are here today to discuss when and how business leaders uh, should, should take a stand on social issues. Ashley Orgain is Chief Impact Officer of Seventh, Tradition, uh, seventh Generation, uh, an eco-friendly products company that was founded in 1988. And the company's name derives from a pledge to consider the next seven generations in every single business decision. Daniela Balueres spent many years as a business consultant at Bain and Dahlberg before joining the State Department under John Kerry and Hillary Clinton. She's the co-founder and CEO of the Leadership Now Project. And Richard Edelman has been CEO of the largest PR agency in the world since 1996. The Edelman Agency since 2000 has been publishing its annual trust barometer, which measures consumer attitudes towards various institutions. So, silence is not an option. Everyone has heard the, you know, the famous Abraham Lincoln quote, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Um, why is silence not an option now for business? Why are more and more businesses risking um, taking a stand? And I'll start at the other end with Ashley. I think that the issues that we're working to solve are meeting us at a moment that we need to have all of us working together to drive solutions forward. And you can't just address climate change within the walls of your business by setting science-based targets like Seventh Generation has done and commit to driving down your emissions by addressing issues in your supply chain or thinking about your product design or what happens at the end of life. Because we know those actions alone aren't going to address the bigger societal and environmental issues. What we're facing now are problems at a systems level. And what that requires is actually businesses going outside the boundaries of what they're doing inside and speaking up and speaking out and starting to take action, advocating for public policy solutions that are actually going to start resolving some of the systemic challenges we find ourselves in. Thanks. Richard? 
You would expect I would talk about the trust barometer, so I will, <laughs> just to make sure you are sure. Okay, first point, the trust in business is substantially higher than trust in government. And the reason for this is competence, 50-point delta between business and government. Business gets stuff done. Point two, business is now the most trusted institution in the world. Point three, you have changed employee base and changed consumer expectations. So you have belief-driven buyers who say, if my brand doesn't stand up for me, I'm not gonna buy it. And you have, similarly, um, employees uh, who are empowered enough it started with the Google walkout, then it went, you know, through Me Too, and then murder of George Floyd, and then Glasgow, and you just keep going with dominoes. Employees, it used to be a power elite like this, and it's been flipped. And the employees feel as if they have a voice in what the companies and brands should be doing. So if you are a company or a brand, you have to speak up on four issues. Sustainability, race and diversity, wage levels and reskilling, and now geopolitics, when 1,300 companies get out of Russia because of their Ukraine invasion. The other issues we should discuss about abortion, voting rights, gun control, keep, keep going, education, policing. Um, and in many cases, companies should stand up on those issues. But you have to be clear about why. And so we can carry on. Um. I mean, I certainly echo what both of my fellow panelists have said, that we're at a moment where, in many cases, political systems, our own political system is not responsive to what citizens need. And we're seeing the effect, whether it's on uh, climate or in inequality, and people are looking, whether it's employees or customers, are looking for leadership. And that leadership is, um, does reside in business in many ways not only because business can deliver, but the reality is and part of we, what we look at is that business has been a very influential actor in politics. So if you're concerned about what's happening in politics and government, business has a role to play in also not only engaging in politics related to tax or regulation, but also to create a foundation foundational system that works and delivers. And uh, Richard, I would maybe modify your geopolitics uh, point or add a point that I think we believe that a foundational issue for business is a functional political system and democracy. Um, voting rights might be a subcategory of that, but really, I mean, if we have illegitimate elections, if political retribution becomes a tool of politicians and otherwise, that is going to ensure that we don't solve any of the other problems uh, and create incredible system, systemic risk, not only in the US, but around the world. I mean, my only point on the geopolitics was, if you're a company, Adidas, whoever, and you are taking cotton from Xinjiang province. And in theory, you've had a factory in China in that region with Uyghurs and that set of issues. You have to make a choice. And do you change or do you not? And we had that with Russia very clearly, but China is the next set of issues. Yeah. And we should discuss that. Yeah, no, agreed. And I think the only thing that I was adding is that political risk is not only an international problem. Political Excellent risk point. is very much domestically right now in the U.S. Correct. 
Richard, it's, it seems to me in, in re reviewing the trust barometer results over the last few years that there's actually a correlation between um, growing trust in the businesses that choose to take a stand. Is that, am I reading that correctly? Is that something that you're seeing? Wasn't there, wasn't there a reaction specifically to um, companies that spoke out against the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, if you spoke out and got out of Russia, you got a 38-point bounce in trust. And if you stayed in Russia, you had a 35-point decline in trust. So do or don't do, but this is the consequence. The broader question of brands um, having a purpose, I know that you know Unilever says that uh, their nine fastest growing brands all have a purpose mm -hmm. and that they have the, the data to show it. Dove Campaign for Real Beauty is the first one. And Hellman's on food waste and all this. And listen, some hedge fund people say, oh, you know, they're woke and all that. That is BS. <laughs> Simply BS. It's just, you know, nice for the hedge fund guy to get some attention. Um, the math doesn't support that. Okay. Um, we live in very weird times, if that's, that may be a headline. Um, but politicians are not just running, but they're getting elected, articulating things that would get them immediately fired from almost any Fortune 500 company. Uh, the thing is, millions and millions of people, consumers, are responding to that. They're voting for them. Um, so in taking strong stands, businesses risk alienating vast numbers of consumers. How do you walk that line? Um, Danielle, your, your career has straddled government and business. Um, how do you walk that line? Yeah, I mean, I think the piece of it from where I sit is that uh, if we look at the foundations of our political system and what a functional democracy delivers for business, we should all be really nervous if that's going away. Um, the, you know, the opposite of democracy is autocracy, right? <laughs> we see erosion of a lot of democratic norms that are um, kind of long game issues, but also in the short term. And so if you're a company that's worried about a question of do I alienate con some consumers, but also I'm trying to think about how do I manage risk? If there's a 2024 election crisis, what would that mean? What would that mean for consumers, my company, et cetera. So I think you know, you're, you're not going to please everyone all of the time, but if we look at what creates stability in the system, having a, you know, elections that you can trust, having participation in the system, one thing we have seen is that democracy, while companies are getting hit with so many issues that they're asked to get step out on, step out on if you can kind of reground in you know, participation in the system is important. We want our employees and customers to be able to participate, to be able to influence the system. That's one way to maybe not take up every issue, but to send the message that you have faith in our system and you're gonna be part of making the system able to deliver over time. Ashley, seventh generation is a mission-driven company. Is it easier or harder to operate a mission-driven company in this volatile political social climate? I would say it's a lot easier than trying to lead a purpose-driven company. 
I think, because mission is embedded in the core of our business and cr has created really clear guideposts for what our values are and what is the work that we need to do to deliver on those values and the commitments we have made in sustainability and advocacy. So I would say that it's actually been a great time for our business, you know, because we have been able to speak up and out on things that are more relevant to people in their everyday lives than we ever have been. And we're finding actually that that is having a benefit to the business. We know that consumers are 20% more loyal when they know that seventh generation has a mission, that they, that we follow through on the things that we say that we care about, and not just by speaking and, and acting on them, but by embedding it into our business. Is the fingerprint framework an expression of, of that? So on, on Monday, after about 20 years of setting the standard for sustainability reporting, Seventh Generation launched the first ever framework for a carbon fingerprint. So leaders that have been acting on climate have been long looking at their own operational impacts, looking at their carbon footprint. What is happening in the operations and what do you need to do to address those emissions? We know that our business, through the ancillary services that we, we use from marketing and creative services to our insurance providers to our banks, are entangled in the fossil fuel industry. And so while it might be several steps removed, for seventh generation to say that we are leading and acting on climate, we have a responsibility to address that. Because if they are entangled, so are we. So we, we launched the Climate Fingerprint, which for the first time ever looks at the climate performance and commitments and actions of our ancillary services. And we've learned a tremendous amount. We've learned that our emissions that are financed as a result of some of our ancillary services are equal to the emissions related to our number one ingredient, SLS, that, that we have a strategy against reducing. So if we have a strategy against reducing the emissions in our ingredients, we need to have a strategy against reducing the emissions that result from our ancillary services. So incredible learning. This is a very first step for us, and we're excited in the next year to, to take it to the next level. Daniela, you have a, you have a framework of your own, correct? Um, and and um, how similar is that to, to what Ashley is describing? Well, you know, I think where there's similarities is <clears throat> looking at the kind of broader picture of impact that a, a issue is having, an organization is having. So the, the, what we um, have developed is a framework to, for business to think about election risks and democracy and what really are the drivers of those risks what are the political factors we're seeing? What impact could that have on your companies, your supply chains, the market? And then what can you do to prevent those or mitigate them? So a, quick, a couple of quick things. When we think about the, um, some of the indications that we do face risks to our political system in the US in the years ahead, we look at things like failure to accept election results, threats to public administrators of elections, political retribution for free speech of companies. All of those are what the academics would say are indications of risk factors in a political system, which 
you know, for those of us who worked internationally for a long time, that's something we looked at elsewhere, not in the US. And unfortunately, we're seeing those risk factors grow here. So the question is, what do you do about that, right? We can all be scared that those factors are happening. But we see companies seeing real, taking real actions, whether that is uh, supporting voting and participation by employees and customers to rebuild faith in the system, supporting poll working, or doing things like pulling back political contributions from those who have refused to accept legitimate election results in the past. Microsoft did that. They redirected their corporate PAC, and they also uh, gave employees the option to support uh, democracy-related efforts. Uh, so, you know, look, this is not without risk. I mean, we're seeing pushback on ESG not only from some annoying hedge fund guys, but, <laughs> but also from, you know, political leaders who are actually saying we're going to redirect our pension funds. And so the one thing I would say to the topic of this discussion is this response to those kind of threats. We definitely are seeing some companies saying silence is the option. You know, they are kind of hiding when Disney gets pressed or other companies get pressed. And I think we would argue, and this is borne out in international experience, that if you hide, if companies hide, when that kind of pressure comes, it's only going to get worse. And what you need is bigger coalitions of companies that will not accept that kind of uh, pushback from political leaders. Richard, you've advised thousands of CEOs and executives. Can you walk us through the typical cost benefit um, analysis or risk reward analysis that they engage in when they are deciding um, whether and how to weigh in on an issue? Thousands is an exaggeration. <laughs> Dozens is, is accurate. Um, okay, so the first thing to do is show up with data. Don't go in and say, my opinion is. So when George Floyd was murdered, we went out in the field and talked to both Democrats and Republicans, and were able to show up in a week and say, Republicans by two to one, Democrats by seven to one, want companies to stand up and speak up about racial injustice. Don't duck your head, this is a mistake. Talk to your people, talk to your broader community. That really helped. Second, on Russia, we were able to show that very profound data about getting in, getting out, but not being um, that it's a duality. You're in or you're out. There, if you have people who are stuck on the ground or you're going to have some huge write-off, then shrink your business. That's a third option. And so we were able to show research to that effect. And CEOs don't like to be cornered. They like to have optionality. So when you advise, you should say, um, here are choices. You, it's not just you have to do this because they go, well, I don't have to do anything. I'm in charge, you know, and it gets to be, you know, two rams like that doesn't work. So that's just how to do your CEO advising. And presumably um, the executive teams do some fairly extensive game playing on these scenarios. I mean, um, is a company like Disney surprised when their position um, winds up escalating tension, or did they anticipate that, and that's, that's a, w a risk they're willing to embrace? I'm not asking you to speak for Disney, but um, just generally. I mean, I think it's important to discuss Disney. I think what happened is the initial instinct with the lobbyist was stay out of it. And then there was blowback from the employees, logically, and then they 
got activist. And then DeSantis went, oh, perfect. I'm going to take that as an opportunity and smacked him. And then, you know, so like this. And they could have gone in coalition with Apple and a bunch of others in the beginning. And they didn't. Um, They chose because, you know, maybe that CEO wanted to be different from Bob Iger. And, you know, that's part of CEO mentality, too. I want to be different than my predecessor and stay out of politics. Well, that doesn't work. No way. You can't stay out of politics, especially if you're a face-forward brand like Disney. And so you have to look through your stakeholder groups, who's going to be happy, who's going to be upset. Um, They're, in a sense, bi-coastal, and you have different constituencies in those places. It's complicated, but go in a pack. Don't get separated off. It's the usual. The wolf will get you. Ashley, last year... uh Ben and Jerry stopped selling in Israeli settlements and um, Palestinian territory, but ultimately was overruled by Unilever, um, its parent company, which also owns Seventh Generation. Um, Did that have any kind of chilling effect on you all at at Seventh Generation? What's it like to operate a mission-driven company under the umbrella of a, a larger corporation? I mean, this is exactly why we were acquired by Unilever, because we are at the forefront in all the categories that we play. We are tapping into a values-aligned consumer, and we have a very strong mission that's embedded across our business. So while I can't speak to the issue that happened with Ben & Jerry's, I can say very much our own experience has been you know, don't blindside your parent company. You know, make very clear what it is that your values are, what goals you have set, what work you're going to do and initiatives you're going to lead to achieve those goals. And it has just enabled us to continue to be further out ahead, which is what they looked at seventh generation initially as. So I wouldn't say that it has been chilling. Um, We've definitely, you know, been sharper on our strategy as a result, though. This episode of Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. We see companies take very strong positions in the United States and not be as vocal about them um, in other countries that have different cultures, different norms. How does this challenge of of taking a strong stand on a social issue uh, play out across borders, going back to the geopolitical question that we were discussing earlier? Daniela, do you have a point of view on that? Yeah, I think it's it's a really good question. I mean, the... um I spent a lot of my career working internationally, and I think that the varying uh, ways that U.S. companies operate internationally, whether it's China or in a a country with different social norms, is really challenging. And the theory of the case in the past was that you enter a country, things will evolve, you operate in Russia, you operate in China, things will become more democratic, the norms will evolve, and I think we're you know, Russia is now really creating that question of can you have different, you know, can you really operate in a world with where you're willing to adjust your norms everywhere to whatever the local environment. So if China is going to 
you know, require surveillance, is that okay or not, you know? So I do think that kind of international um, question is, you know, I don't have, certainly don't have the full answer to, but I, I do think the risk of just operating an environment like occurred in Russia or elsewhere um, is, is going to create a whole set of risk factors. The one other just thing I, I wanted to add from the previous discussion is that when we look at, I think this kind of asking CEOs to be the spokesperson on everything is not sustainable. Correct. And it is a function of the political system not functioning well. And you know, one very specific example, when we look at abortion, the laws that are coming out from states that are particularly extreme and inconsistent with state level, what you would see citizens in that state care about, are coming from highly gerrymandered state legislatures, which means that those state legislatures are elected by very small minorities of primary voters in those states who are often very extreme. And as a result, those state legislatures don't feel accountable to anyone in their state, and they will pass all kinds of laws that are inconsistent, whether it's on abortion, whether it's on guns and otherwise. And so I would argue it is in our best interest if we work on as quickly as possible <laughs> solving some of those systemic issues that are creating polarization, creating bad policy, and that's where every business can get behind it. And by the way, at some point it'll get CEOs off the hook. <laughs> so I do think there's a path there and, that's, and you know, it's not irrelevant to when we think internationally, what are the kind of norms we want to create a behavior. So on that point, the list of 1,300 companies that have gotten out of Russia is interesting because you'll see the national identities. A lot of American, a bunch of Brit, and German. And the German one is the big shocker because Allianz and a bunch of other German companies have gotten out of Russia. I think even VW is taking its um, business. No French. No Japanese. So it just tells you that um, they have a different value set. And the trend definitely comes from the US, UK. Um, but on sustainability, that's not necessarily so. On sustainability, you could argue that Germany is ahead and France like this. So it depends by issue. Uh, and also look by industry. So. In this case, on Russia, the first movers was financial services by law, then tech, because it was clever, um, and then the laggers were QSR, CPG, like this. So it's a matrix. As the stakes have risen and continue to rise, have you seen any kind of evidence uh, increasing backlash against companies that engage in frivolous virtue signaling, greenwashing? Um, is there anything in the trust barometer that, that uh, speaks to that? So we did a study for uh, Glasgow last year. And I just told you that business is the most trusted institution across the world, except on sustainability, it's the least. The gap between trust in business and trust in business on sustainability is like 40 points. Because all hat, no cattle, to use a Texan expression, um, bad joke. Um, but the point is business now has to come up to what it has promised. You do, um, but some others don't. Anything to add to that, Ashley? I mean, the, other than thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we do. Does that yeah. um, position your this you know the fingerprint framework position your company to be 
um, influential? I, I, we hope so. I think that's what it's going to surface for us. You know, the learnings and insights into seventh generation committing and saying that we're a climate leader, yet there are many parts of our business that are entangled in underwriting the fossil fuel industry. That's unacceptable. And I, and I very much, we very much believe that that is going to be this next standard that we're going to see pushing towards leaders that want to act on climate. Um, really widening the lens to look at all of the impacts that they have. Um, so, yes, we, we, we are going to push that envelope and continue to act on it. I just add one, one yes, thing. Please. I mean, I, I, that's really interesting data, Richard, about that disconnect and sustainability. And I feel like that's, that's a sign that, you know, consumers ultimately get inconsistency, right? They, they're, and I, I think one of the things that we see kind of in that inconsistency in the political system, for instance, is that when you had the big climate bill up this year, you know, many companies had supported, you know, our, you know, say they care about climate, et cetera, but ultimately the large U.S. business organizations, the Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, who represent many great companies, were against the, the climate legislation that ultimately passed. And you know, that, I think that kind of inconsistency comes ultimately at a cost in trust. And, you know, in a, in a better world, those organizations would have been constructive partners in the negotiation, right? Um, so I think there is a lot of work to do on the sustainability set. Great. So, Richard, when we were speaking earlier, you mentioned, um, I'd ask you, as sentiment has shifted from faith in one institution to another. Um, was there a particular moment when you felt um, the shift occurring? Uh, and, and you mentioned one, and I, I wonder if uh, Daniela and, and Ashley, as, assuming they agree there's been a trend or a shift in, in sentiment, whether they can also point to any moment. But, but Richard, I think you, you pointed to George well, Floyd. So NGOs were always the most trusted uh, institution for 19 years and then the pandemic happened and then suddenly government became the most trusted because it was the one institution large enough to manage a response and then government failed in several ways and was seen as not competent and business actually did very well during the pandemic keeping employees safe delivering technology you know like this we had products and so business zoomed. I don't think it's sustainable over time to have media and government be so low and NGOs and business be so high. It's like a table with four legs and it's tilts because two are short and two are long and the plates fall off the table. Uh, so my everyday hope is that government proves that in fact it can deliver on reskilling or, you know, preparation for the next pandemic or, you know, name it. Uh, and otherwise we're going to be in a fix. We actually worked on U.S. competitiveness together and we've missed some fastballs down the middle, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about um, sustainability. We've talked about... Um, uh, a strong democracy as being found, foundational. Um, 
you know, the, the tension between mercantile motives and um, human rights has always existed in this country. I mean, predating its founding. Um, and Americans define opportunity very differently. Um, how, how does all of this play out over the next five to 10 years, do you think? I mean, presumably, um, Daniela and Ashley, you've created frameworks to help influence direction and how it plays out, but how do you see this playing out? Will, business, will businesses continue to feel emboldened and, and uh, feel a responsibility to take increasingly strong positions or um, not? I know we will because the moment requires it. I mean, there are so many urgent issues that require us to be doing this work. And we have an employee base that expects it. We have consumers that are demanding it. We have nonprofit partners that are allying with us to create those frameworks and those standards for what needs to be done. And we're seeing that we're actually being celebrated in the marketplace for it. So I don't see any indicators that would suggest we would shift away from doing anything that we are as a mission-driven business that is committed to thinking about the next seven generations, we won't change that. It's core to who we are. Um, I think that's encouraging because we need that. <laughs> uh, look, I, I do think business will, business has always been part of society. It's, you know, it's where people work and interact and where there's money in the system and everything else. So I, I don't think that's entirely new, although the pressures now are more significant. But I do, you know, I share Richard's uh, perspective. I like the table analogy that it's just not sustainable to have our political system, to have government as not a credible actor in all of this, because you need all of those elements of society to be functional. And I think it, almost a first step is, I think we all have to own that. We are the shareholders in our democracy, in our political system. If it's not working, it's not some politician over there. It's people we've elected and we've been part of. And democracy, we know, is a evolutionary thing. It's something that we all have to be part of redesigning and renewing over time. And I've seen a lot more of that activity in individual business leaders in our group. We work with national security leaders on that. And I see it with companies that are trying to figure out how to weigh in on all of that. So, you know, I'm worried if we basically give up on having a functional government and political system, we could decide exactly what that looks like, but that I think business can play a role. And has not always been thoughtful about its role in the political system, right? Because if you're optimizing often for tax and regulatory concerns in a political system, that political system might go off the rails in lots of other places. You know, you, if you assume the political system is static, then you can optimize for your specific thing. But if it's actually not working, that can become a really big problem. So I think there's a lot of work for us to do. There's tangible things we have looking ahead for the next five years. The next two years are really risky. Faith, I mean, a third of Americans don't believe in our election results. That could lead to violence. We can all play a role in lowering the temperature. We can do things like support the Electoral Count Act, which is 
actually may pass on a bipartisan basis in the next few months that clarifies presidential transitions. There is a role for us to play, but it'll be choppy waters, um, and I don't think we can step away. The thing we haven't talked at all about is the mass class divide. Mm. The mass class divide started in the US, UK, and France about 2012. We started to see this. So mass flatlined elites, as defined by lots of education, make a lot of money, like read a lot of media, like this. And you saw Brexit, Trump, uh, Macron. Now, uh, the mass class divide is 25 points in Germany, 25 points in Canada, 25 points even in you know places that you wouldn't expect. It's like 10 or 15 points in China. So you start to see the, the elites now, why does this matter and what does it cause? It's because of fears. Um, you see that fears of being replaced by a machine, fears of sustainability or you know, climate, um, you, you see fears of downward economic mobility. And so the important role for business in addressing issues like reskilling if you're in financial services, if you're in retailing, and if your attitude is basically, I'm just gonna fire them, they'll find a job somewhere else, that's completely irresponsible because government isn't suited to do it. And I think it is a business's responsibility to upskill people. And you know whether that's a brand responsibility or a corporate it really matters little. But the bigger question is, can you keep a coherent society when you have the you know, 80% of the people feeling, you know, what do I get out of this? I'm going backwards, I can't keep up. Richard, any, any predictions on um, how the uh, consumer faith and, and institutions is likely to shift, continue to shift in the next couple of years? So I think that um, the, numbers for government are going to continue to decline. In fact, we saw between May, we did a, a study for World Economic Forum in May um, for mid-year Davos, uh, which showed government here. And then by September, when we just did a survey about uh, employers, uh, it had dropped by 18 points in the UK and 11 points in the US. So I think government trend is down. Uh, we saw that Business trend was steady, particularly in my employer. This is a key point. Trust is local. Trust is in my employer, my CEO, and amazingly, in my company's publication, higher than mainstream media, higher than social media, higher than government channels. Uh, so I trust that which I can see. And if I don't like the company, I can leave. It's a control thing. So we have to get quality facts out to um the people. So I think trust in media will continue to be low, government low. I think business pretty high. And I think NGOs will have rallied this year because um, of sustainability, human rights. They, they've seemed to be effective. Ashley and Daniela, um, any advice to those of us who are just mere consumers and what we can do to help bolster um, companies that are standing up for our values and things that we believe in? Join us in taking action. I mean, you go to our website and we've got an action center. Patagonia has an action center. A lot of the brands that you probably have relationships with have action centers and they're putting out 
newsletters that are keeping you educated on the issues that, that you share in value just like the brands do. And they're creating opportunities for you at a local level and at a federal level to get involved. And that's exactly what we need. So highly encouraging everyone to be following their companies and brands that they admire and joining them in the efforts that are essential for us to address. And Ashley, I assume that those, the Action Center includes how people can reach their member of Congress or their local election official. That's exactly it. That's we, we will give you a, a menu of opportunities to engage at the local level directly with a city council member in some, in some states that we're working on or at the federal level with your congressperson. Depends on the issue, depends on where you're located. Yeah, I think the one thing I would add, I mean, obviously doing things within your own business and things like reskilling or sustainability are, are critical, but in terms of kind of the broader interaction, I do think as an individual, voting in your primaries and actually knowing who your local representative is. I mean, it's really stunning to me, and I will put myself in that bucket, the number of people who are well-educated on lots of other things and don't know who represents them and don't know the decisions they make on policies that really matter. And so I think that's both an opportunity and a responsibility to get much more informed about um, who represents you. In a state like New York, the only thing that matters is the primary, at least in New York City, where it's uh, most of New York City, where it's Democrats. But I also think companies should um, interrupt the sort of normal course of events. Starbucks, like five or six years ago, did something called Opportunity Youth. And they said, look, there are going to be a lot of minority kids who are not going to have summer jobs. The economy was a little flaky. And so they said, we're going to hire 10,000. Did a job fair in a couple markets. And then 18 other companies joined in and the 100,000 kids got hired. That's really important. Well, I think an action step for each of us to take as we leave this room and, and leave this festival is a, is a great way to end. But we do have a couple of minutes left in case I neglected to ask the question you were dying for me to ask. I, I wanna make sure that all of you have said everything you, you want to say on this subject. All right. Anything? You want to go? You go first. Trust is four things. Ability, dependability, integrity, and purpose. Before 2008 crash, ability was 75% of trust. Today, it's 25. The other three are 75. And I think companies and brands all have to recognize that trust is earned by action. You have to do something. You can't just talk about it. I think do your homework. We all vote with our dollars. Have a really good understanding of what's underneath the hood of the companies that you buy for and make sure that that's aligned with your own values. Um, the last thing I'd say, I, I, feel, I spoke a fair bit about risk and the risks we have ahead, but also in the spirit of, I mean, this is the Innovations Festival, to create a great dynamic political system is actually a lot about innovation. America was an innovation by, you know, as, as it uh, sought to be a country that would be uh, no longer under a monarchy. And so I just think we, I invite all of us to think about how do we innovate to make our system more effective and responsive and, and do that across business and government. Well, thank all three of you very much uh, for being here today. And uh, we're going to take a a lunch break here on the main stage now, but you'll want to be back at 1.30 for a conversation about climate change in the private sector. 
with leaders from Genpak, Climate Vault, and Northern Trust. Over in the forum at two Fast Company's own, Casey Afini will be hosting a live taping of his Creative Control podcast with comedian Brittany Broski. Uh, don't forget to share your favorite moments on social media using hashtag FC Festival. And let's thank uh, our panelists. And thank you all.